Hi, I'm Walter Olson, uh, Senior Fellow at Cato's uh, Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, and I wanted to welcome you to today's uh, Cato Book Forum on Professor Philip Hamburger's new book, Purchasing Submission. Also joining us will be uh, Professor Ilya Soman of George Mason University Scalia School of Law. Uh, before we get started, uh, a few words about how you, the audience, can participate. Uh, this is being streamed on various platforms, including YouTube and Facebook. Uh, you can participate using the hashtag CatoScotus, that's uh, C-A-T-O-S-C-O-T-U-S, uh, and we will be collecting some of those comments and questions for our speakers um, uh, for the question and answer period, so please do participate. Uh, our book today is Purchasing Submission by uh, Professor uh, Philip Hamburger. Uh, professor Hamburger is uh, Maurice and Hilda Friedman Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. Uh, he was educated at uh, Princeton and got his BA at Yale. Uh, he is a uh, renowned specialist in constitutional law, legal history, and the First Amendment, as well as administrative power, uh, all of which I think we will be hearing about today. Uh, he is uh, particularly well known to uh, Asit Cato for his book, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? Uh, and has also done pioneering work on uh, the constitutional problems with the uh, prohibition of political speech by churches. Uh, he is the founder and president of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, headquartered in Washington, uh, well known also to us at Cato, which files uh, civil rights lawsuits over excesses of the administrative state. Uh, he's won many prizes, including the Bradley Prize and the Hayek Book Prize. Uh, commenting on uh, his book will be Julia Soman, who really does need no introduction. Uh, I think to Cato people, he is an uh, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, uh, professor of law at George Mason, author of books including Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration and Political Freedom, uh, and The Grasping Hand, Kilo versus City of New London and the Limits of Eminent Domain. Um, he's known to many of you also uh, for his contributions to the Bolo Conspiracy uh, on the web. So uh, a word or two about uh, uh, <coughs> purchasing submission. Uh, it is a wide-ranging book. The um, uh, uh, doctrine of so-called unconstitutional conditions sounds as if it should be dull. It is not the least bit dull, and it has applications uh, across the spectrum. I'm going to let this siren go by. Um, uh, it has <coughs> applications in far-flung areas from uh, strings attached to federal funding, where it is perhaps uh, the, uh, the, the first area that comes to mind, uh, but also uh, areas as, as far flung as plea bargaining, uh, immigration, uh, and social services. So um, uh, the, the book has been praised by such figures as Judge Jose Cubanas, Judge Douglas Ginsburg, uh, former Solicitor General Paul Clement, and we are eager to hear more about it today. So. Uh, Professor Hamburger. Well, thank you so much for that kind introduction. Good to be with both of you and everyone else. Um, it's a great pleasure. So yes, this, this book is, uh, it's about a new mode of government governance that we haven't really fully appreciated. Uh, we knew it's there, but we haven't really focused on it. Uh, we know from Schoolhouse Rock, not to mention the constitution that we're governed by laws adopted by Congress. Um, 
And we know also that there's an administrative state in which agencies direct us with edicts or commands of varying sorts. But it turns out there's another mode of governance that is increasingly robust, which is to purchase our submission, to purchase our compliance uh, in all sorts of ways that at least I had not fully thought through until digging into it. And then as one digs in, it turns out to be much more capacious and worrisome than I imagined even at the outset. So I'd like to begin, if I may, with a story, a story about an after dinner conversation with a good friend. About two decades ago, I was visiting a friend for dinner and after a wonderful meal, we sat around just talking. And at one point I asked him, why he had not yet published one of his articles. He's a great statistician and he had written a wonderful piece, but it was circulating only in manuscript. Why not in print? And he answered to my astonishment, he could not publish it under the rules of his university's institutional review board. I didn't know what an institutional review board was. And he explained that he had forgotten to obtain prior permission for his research and its publication from the IRB, Institutional Review Board, um, and that if he published without its permission, he would have difficulty getting permission to publish his future scholarship. They would punish him by barring his future research and scholarship. He might even lose his job, he said. I couldn't believe this at first, but he was serious. And this, he said, was why he was circulating his work in manuscript as if it was Russian Zemzadat. Well, I was horrified. What was an IRB? Why did my friend need its permission? Why was this not unconstitutional? It looked more like the 17th century than the, the 20th or 21st. The answers involved federal funding. My friend's research was not federally funded, but the federal government had funded his university on the condition that the university create an institutional review board and that it force scholars to get licenses or permission before doing human subjects research uh, and before publishing it. Even research based on published data can require public prior permission. And if you publish this without prior permission, you can be prevented from publishing again. And you, as I said, you can even be fired. Well, this conversation changed my life. Uh, before that evening, my scholarship was mostly historical. I spent my life writing about the dead and even in some ways perhaps for the dead. Um, since then, I've turned to contemporary legal scholarship and I confess I prefer writing for the living. Uh, beforehand, I would never have dreamt of litigating. Corporate law and corporate tax was my practice area before academia. Now I think about litigation all the time and I even do a little bit of it at the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Before I had no interest whatsoever in conditions. I don't think I gave it a second thought. And now for better or worse, I have a book on it. What I'd like to do is to begin, is to start by just looking at some examples of conditions. Uh, eventually I will want to generalize, but conditions are complicated mechanisms. Um, some sort of government money or privilege goes in one direction and some sort of consent or commitment to some sort of regulation goes in the other direction. So it helps to explore the texture of the problem before turning to abstractions. So here's a simple example. The government buys an airplane and it can stipulate in its contract that it will not pay for the airplane unless and until the airplane flies. That makes sense. Um, and most conditions are equally sensible and lawful. It's quite ordinary and there are thousands, millions of such conditions. But other conditions are more interesting, even disturbing. Some conditions are 
actually attempts to purchase one's constitutional rights. So, you probably don't know about castration conditions, do you? Well, some states offer parole to sex offenders on the condition that they submit to regular injections, which temporarily reduce their testosterone. And this is known as chemical castration. Now, you think that's bad. Well, one state, yes, California, one state adds that offenders can avoid the injections on parole if, it's a big if, if they voluntarily submit to permanent surgical castration. <laughs> now, if there's a right to bodily integrity, these conditions are, how should I put it, worrisome? And let me give another example. Um, this one is 501c3 of the tax code, a little bit less um, salacious. It offers tax exemption to churches and other nonprofits on the condition that they do not engage in electioneering or much lobbying propaganda, as the uh, Internal Revenue Code calls it. Now, nonprofits are actually, it sounds so sort of mundane to call them nonprofits. That's a tax code you know, type of description, but they're actually idealistic organizations, at least in contrast to business organizations. So why suppress the election and lobbying speech by idealistic organizations in contrast to others? If these conditions look a little strange, you should not be surprised. This pair of speech limitations on persuading vo voters and then persuading legislators um, was first proposed by a guy called Hiram Evans. Um, he was the imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, so these conditions have an interesting history. I don't want to delve into that now. Suffice it to say that these conditions, whether regarding castration or political speech, illustrate the threat to constitutional rights. You may not think that these particular conditions are unconstitutional. We can debate that later, but there clearly is reason for concern. But conditions do more than threaten rights. Some, some conditions are regulatory. They circumvent the constitution's avenues for regulation. Consider President Biden's vaccine requirements for federal employees. Now leave aside for a moment whether it violates a constitutional right. What's interesting for my purposes is that it's a regulatory condition. It is part of a candidly regulatory scheme. A vaccination, vaccination may be very good policy, but what's, what's important is how it's imposed. If Biden had sought a law or an administrative rule on vaccines, he would have faced some political and constitutional objections. It's, it would have been difficult, I suspect. So rather than seeking a binding rule or statute, he threatens to deny employment uh, to those who do not get the vaccine. Compliance is obtained by withholding a government benefit, job, or money. Now let's turn to examples of what one might call defederalized or privatized regulation. Some regulatory conditions go further. Rather than conditions on the regulated parties, they're conditions on other institutions requiring them to regulate their personnel. In other words, it's not like a contract with two parties, there's a third party involved. The best known example of this devolution of regulation is South Dakota versus Dole, the old case in the 1980s. To get full federal funding for highway construction, state highway construction, a state has to have, according to the federal government, a minimum drinking age of 21 years. This A direct imposition of a federal drinking age would have faced political problems, and severe constitutional problems. 
So Congress just conditioned highway construction on the adoption of federal regulatory policy. By means of conditions, the federal government uses the states to impose federal regulatory policy. This is a, literally a defederalization of regulation. Other examples involve the privatization of regulation. The vaccine requirements for government contractors fall into this category. Contractors must require vaccines from their employees and must require their subcontractors to do this if they want to get federal contracts. The result is regulatory conditions all the way down. You thought if you were a philosopher, it was turtles all the way down. It's actually conditions all the way down. I think these examples illustrate the range of conditions. It should be enough for us to get started in a little bit of analysis. So I now want to share my thesis in a little more detail. Put simply, conditions have become a pathway of dangerous unconstitutional power. They're familiar, conditions are familiar to constitutional law scholars as a technical problem about con constitutional rights. This is the way I was taught it and the way I thought about it for a long time. It's a sort of curious conundrum, a hard nut to crack. If the government does not directly restrict your rights, but merely pays you to give them up, has it really acted unconstitutionally? And there's a vast literature on this. Uh, it's, it's an interesting literature, um, but it focuses just on this one problem as if it's this difficulty involving rights. The Supreme Court has some rather vague doctrine on conditions, uh, but that's all. And the result is that conditions are known simply for assaulting rights and for the sheer vagueness of Supreme Court doctrine. So the problem festers. It's an area of great uncertainty. The approach of my book is a little different, very different. Um, conditions are not just a technical problem relating to rights. They're a new pathway of power, an irregular and unlawful mode of power, which evades the Constitution's regular and lawful avenues. The Constitution lays out a regular avenue for power, binding statutes of Congress and binding judgments of the court. The statutes are binding because they come with the consent of the people. The judgments are binding because they come from judges who are independent, independent of politics and all other will. Conditions mm -hmm. displace these avenues with their own irregular path for both legislative and judicial power. So that's my main point. Uh, we need to understand conditions as an evolving path of power. Um, in the sense, this is sort of political theory point. Um, you cannot think of our system of government just as a republic. We know that from administrative power. But one can't think of the irregular mode of governance simply in administrative terms as a series of edicts from those who are unelected and judicial decisions from those who are not judges. That doesn't quite capture it. Turns out there's another irregular mode of governance, which is done consensually. Now, there are all sorts of possible objections to what I'm saying, and I want to allude to a few of them. You may very reasonably protest that conditions are perfectly lawful and useful. I agree, that's true, most are. They're perfectly lawful and often very useful. Recall the airplane example. If the government buys an airplane, why shouldn't it say we won't pay unless it flies? There's some interesting contract law variations on this, um, but the government is in a position to place those conditions. Some conditions, however, are, as I think we've seen by now, a little more worrisome. Um, and the goal of this book is simply to recognize that some conditions, not all, but some, 
are used to purchase submission in an unconstitutional manner. And just even with those relatively small number of conditions being unlawful and being used for these purposes creates a huge problem in political theory and for constitutional law. You may also object that administrative power is a similarly an irregular path of power. Uh, that we've already gone down this path as it were, so it's okay. Administrative power is not the avenue of power laid out in the constitution. Um, and so it is, an, I consider a regular mode of control. But administrative power can't really justify or excuse the governance through conditions. Administrative power, whatever you think of its constitutionality, and I know there's a lot of disagreement about that, um, it at least purports to govern through binding rules, which are published get notice and comment. Notice and comment is substituted for voting, but you know, so be it. At least there is notice, at least there is comment, at least there are published rules that are supposedly binding. And it at least purports to adjudicate through things that have the pretense of looking like courts, through mock tribunals conducted by administrative law judges. Conditions are the very opposite. Uh, they don't mimic law. They go an entirely different direction. They purport not to bind. And because they don't bind, they seem to evade most constitutional rights, indeed much constitutional scrutiny. Conditions, moreover, are not always or entirely published. So we don't even know fully what they require, or who is affected. A statute may publish a condition in a sentence or two. An agency will then elaborate this perhaps in some rules, but it gets further elaboration in each contract or, or um, uh, statement of the condition by each institution. And so unless one actually looks at each institution's document, you don't actually know what the conditions are. And of course, through further conversations and site visits, the conditions get even further elaborated and none of this typically is public. And of course, conditions are also different in that breaches of condition are usually adjudicated entirely informally. There are formal mechanisms for adjudicating breaches of conditions, but agencies rarely follow those because they don't want judicial review. And the simplest way to avoid judicial review is not to adjudicate formally in an administrative sense, but simply to have an informal conversation about it. So affected parties do not even have the abbreviated process of administrative tribunals. What usually happens is there's a phone call or a site visit and a, a federal agency officer will say, let's work this out so it doesn't get worse. And through three, sheer intimidation, the affected parties just submit to more conditions. So government by conditions is much worse than administrative governance. Administrative power is an irregular path of governments that at least mimics law in being binding, published, semi-public. Governance by conditions does not mimic law. It's the very opposite, goes the opposite direction. And so is much more dangerous than administrative power. Now, to substantiate my main thesis about the dangers of conditions as a mode of governance, I'd like to explore three aspects of the problem. First, let me say something about regulatory conditions. Remember, regular, regulatory conditions are those that function as a means of regulation. They're substitutes for a binding act of Congress. The Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce. When Congress does that, regulation comes in public acts made with consent of the public after public debate. In contrast, conditions tend to privatize regulation. A regulatory decision comes in private transactions made with private consent after private horse trading. 
And when regulatory conditions run through private organizations, such as contractors or here at Columbia University, the regulation is more fully privatized. Private bodies regulate for the government. This is the full privatization of governance. Now, all of this is profoundly dangerous. There's, we, instead of engaging in a political struggle, government can make a separate peace with the regulated parties. It can buy off legal and political opposition, leaving other regulated parties without allies to resist the regulation. Indeed, if one's competitors take the money, one may have no choice but to submit simply to avoid the competitive advantage going to one's competitor. Most seriously, privatized regulation deprives Americans of agency and participation in government. If you don't like the alienation of so many people regarding our government these days, um, one way to start is getting rid of administrative and especially power and especially purchasing power through submission uh, um, through government largesse. Second, I'd like to talk about commandeering. The Supreme Court bars commandeering. It has a sort of anti-commandeering doctrine, it calls it. But this isn't just doctrine. It's actually a structural point. The court describes it as resting on the independence of different sovereigns. The federal government and the states draw their power from the people independently of each other, so the federal government cannot direct state policy. And this makes a lot of sense. Just as in McCulloch versus Maryland, a state tax could not apply to a federal instrumentality, so in reverse, in Prince versus in New York, Federal law cannot direct state policy. But the Supreme Court says that commandeering exists only with coercion. This doesn't make sense because structures, constitutional, constitutional structures can be violated without any force. But this coercion is the reality of current doctrine. What's the result? The government assumes that its conditions can dictate state policy because they don't come with coercion. Conditions allegedly, remember, don't bind. They're the opposite of law in that regard. It's just a gift. So they usually seem to escape the anti-commandeering doctrine. The Supreme Court doctrine thus enables the federal direction of state policy. This is why the Biden administration, for example, assumes it can give money to the states on the condition that they not lower their taxes. An astonishing thought, but one can see the doctrinal justification for this in their reading of Supreme Court doctrine. And this illustrates how regula regulatory conditions can undermine basic constitutional structures. The pretense that there's no, nothing binding here, it's just a gift with a limitation or condition, says a lot about how the, the, this mode of government sort of dangerously undermines constitutional structure. Third, I want to talk about conditions restricting rights. These are, this is the most famous category of conditions. They're often called unconstitutional conditions. The Supreme, which is an odd name, of course, because there are other types of conditions that should be considered unconstitutional. So I try to avoid that label. It's, it's quite misleading. The Supreme Court has some doctrine on the subject, but it's highly unclear and confusing. For example, the, the court says sometimes that conditions must come with some force or coercion to violate rights. But at times, it doesn't require more than the mildest pressure. Think of uh, Trinity Lutheran versus Comer. So the, the case, Supreme Court cases are quite confusing. My book deals with a lot of the coercion issues. Um, and I just want to pick out a few points here that I think are illuminating. In fact, constitutional rights usually do require some force of pressure to be violated. The Establishment Clause would, I think, be an ex exception to that. But the amount of force and pressure varies from one right 
to another. Um, indeed, in some instances, the amount of pressure involved to violate a right is so negligible as to be scarcely noticeable. So for example, when an FBI agent sees your door unlocked, indeed the latch is not up, and just gently slides in, pushing the door so slightly, that's not much pressure, right? It's not breaking and entering. There's no force used against you. But that's not to say it's, it's lawful if there isn't reason to search and there isn't a warrant. Um, when a state university says you won't be admitted uh, as a student and does so on grounds of unlawful discrimination, there isn't much pressure there, not much force or coercion, but that's not to say it isn't unlawful. So we shouldn't have too high an expectation of coercion for violations of rights. Moreover, many conditions actually come with a full force of law, and this has been widely missed, but it, it's, it's clearly evident. For one thing, uh, federal law actually makes many conditions uh, directly enforceable in administrative proceedings. Who knew? Um, second, uh, some conditions just by their nature come with a force of law. And what's particularly interesting here are, are, are licensing conditions. When licensing boards place conditions on getting the license, there's the full force of law, both in inducing consent to the condition and in enforcing the condition. Why? Because regulatory licensing, which is a licensing that exists against a background constraint, and then it offers relief. Regulatory licensing depends upon the force of law um, and merely offers relief from that. So there's the full force of law behind all regulatory conditions. So if one's litigating on so-called unconstitutional conditions, those that restrict rights, I think there are all sorts of opportunities for argument that have been largely ignored. And if one's litigating questions of conditions that are in the regulatory sphere, there are all sorts of issues, again, that uh, I think need attention. In fact, there's been so little attention to them, there's no precedent running against one. Um, the Supreme Court hasn't dealt with the issue, so it's just an open field. In sum, uh, conditions have become, I think, an irregular and unconstitutional, unconstitutional pathway for power. They're used to do through private consent what not, cannot be done in public acts. They're an irregular path for regulation, for commandeering, and for denying rights. And all of this should be very worrisome. It's bad enough that we have to worry about how to tame administrative power as an alternative to the power established by our Constitution. But we also have to deal with another irregular mode of governance, which is the government's purchase of our submission. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Hamburger. And um, once again, for those watching on social media, um, you can ask questions by using uh, the uh, particular media chat or uh, hashtag CatoScotus. Um, with that, uh, let me turn the floor over to Professor Ilya Soman, uh, who will be commenting. Thank you. Uh, it's an honor to be here, if only virtually, to talk about this extremely important book. Uh, I think it's definitely a path-breaking work on the issue it talks about, uh, and it's going to be much discussed by scholars in the field, but also probably in litigation over a variety of issues as well. Uh, so I think it's going to be an important and influential book, uh, and deservedly so. Uh, in my commentary, I'll start by talking about why it's so important and why this is such a significant issue. Uh, then I'll give a few reservations that I have about some aspects of the argument. And then finally, 
I'll talk a little bit about why, even though the book itself focuses almost entirely on the federal government and its actions, uh, many of the same issues actually apply to things that state governments do. They too impose conditions on people, both regulatory conditions and conditions that are attached to uh, various kinds of state government funding. Uh, and some state governments uh, do this on a very large scale over a wide range of issues. And therefore, uh, if Phillips' argument is accepted with respect to the federal government, even in part, then many parts of it, I think, would be applicable against the states uh, and in some instances, localities as well. Uh, so why is this such an important issue? Uh, I think it's because uh, there are just so many situations where the federal government funds people or state governments or localities uh, and attaches conditions to it. And also there's a wide range of regulatory conditions as well, uh, where what the federal government does uh, is that uh, it essentially imposes restrictions of various kinds, uh, in some cases as a way to get out of pre-existing regulation. Uh, so this is a truly uh, massive issue. Just to illustrate, state governments get some 30% of all the money that they spent from the federal government. And almost all of those streams of money do have conditions attached to them. Uh, not all of them are necessarily unconstitutional under Phillips' argument, but a good many uh, are at least questionable. Uh, and obviously, many millions of private citizens and many thousands of private organizations also get some substantial proportion of their money uh, from the federal government. Uh, and again, in many cases, there are conditions attached to this, ranging from conditions for uh, poverty relief for welfare programs that attach to millions of poor people, conditions for funding uh, for many kinds of institutions, educational institutions, federal contractors, and many, many others. Uh, and uh, therefore, this is a ubiquitous issue in our society, uh, and uh, it affects uh, both the governmental structure and private individuals uh, on an enormous scale. Uh, the effect is increased, as Philip points out in his book, uh, by the fact that often what the federal government does is it pays uh, one set of people or one set of institutions to regulate others. So in the case of the 21 drinking age, which he mentions, it essentially pays state governments to impose a 21 drinking age uh, on their citizens uh, in cases uh, where there is funding that's given to universities or other institutions. It essentially pays the universities to regulate the students as in the case of Title IX, for example, which uh, in some cases goes as far as regulating sort of sexually explicit speech uh, that one student can give to other students uh, in conversations on college dorms and the like. Uh, so uh, the scope of this is enormous, uh, and Philip effectively points out several problems that it raises. It can circumvent or undermine constitutional rights. It can undermine procedural restrictions on how the government can act. Uh, it can also uh, undermine constitutional federalism uh, as well. Uh, given the enormous scope of the problem and the way that some aspects of it, I think as Philip points out, have not been well dealt with either by previous scholars or even less so uh, by court decisions, I think it's inevitable that in this uh, first comprehensive attempt to address it, there are gonna be some potential problems. And I think it doesn't take away from the significance of the book or the achievement of it that uh, you know they are there and 
Uh, it's my job as the commentator to raise at least some controversy uh, and point some of them out. Uh, I think one big one uh, deals with the federal government spending power. Uh, and Philip argues that the federal government doesn't actually have a general power to spend money uh, because the clause, which is usually called the spending clause of the Constitution, uh, is actually just a tax clause. Uh, what it says is that uh, taxes uh, can be used uh, for the purposes of promoting the general welfare and also to provide for the common defense and pay the debts of the United States. Uh, and therefore, because if there isn't a general spending power uh, that uh, weakens the extent to which the government can use uh, spending to impose conditions. Uh, I think this government, this argument doesn't fully work uh, because while it's true, the clause in a text speaks of using taxes to promote the general welfare and uh, provide for the common defense and so on, it's pretty obvious that the way taxes do so is by raising money that can be spent for those purposes. Uh, so uh, the taxing clause, uh, if you want to call it that, is also a spending clause as well because it outlines the spending purposes for which taxes can be raised. Uh, and this, I think, suggests that if you want to limit this power, uh, there's a different strategy which should be adopted, which is to reconsider the admittedly long-standing doctrine, which says that the general welfare can be virtually anything that the uh, Congress concludes is beneficial. In reality, I think this is at odds with the text because if the general welfare covers everything potentially beneficial, it would render superfluous the provisions in the same clause that say you can spend for the common defense uh, and also uh, to pay the debts the United States. Both of those things are pretty obviously within the scope of the general welfare uh, sort of broadly conceived, if you, if you conceive it that broadly. Uh, so uh, in, in a couple of uh, articles, I have proposed that instead you adopt a narrower approach to general welfare, and there are several ways of doing this. Uh, one that I, you know, that I would advocate. I won't. I don't have time to, to discuss alternatives in detail. But one that I would advocate to say first: the general welfare includes spending to implement other powers that Congress has, uh, and second, that it may include the power to implement those few uh, activities or programs that really do benefit virtually everybody. Uh, the example that I like to use is asteroid defense uh, against an asteroid that would otherwise totally devastate uh, human civilization. For reason I can talk about, asteroid defense uh, is not clearly covered by other enumerated powers of government. You can't really say that it's uh, defense in the sense the Constitution uses that word, which is usually defense, defense against foreign powers, uh, but I think it clearly is uh, for the general welfare. On the other hand, a great many grants to state governments and to private organizations uh, whether they're really for the general welfare is at the very least highly questionable. Uh, and you can limit the scope of various conditions uh, on that basis, particularly since not just the grant itself, but conditions attached to it also have to serve the purpose uh, that the Constitution allows, uh, promoting the common defense, general welfare, paying the debts, and so on. So I think this may be a more promising strategy for limiting spending conditions, though it does run into uh, existing precedent. Uh, a second issue, and this one uh, Philip does address at some length, is that I think there's a difficult issue on the question of sort of which constitutional rights can be vitiated by consent and which ones cannot. Philip does not argue 
that none can be vitiated by consent. He admits that some can be, but I think uh, uh, addressing this requires somewhat more discussion than he gives it in the book. Uh, and uh, it does raise some difficult questions. I agree with Philip that there are some easy cases which cannot be consented away at all. Uh, like, for example, it doesn't seem like you can consent to a cruel or unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment. And perhaps that uh, covers the castration case that Philip mentioned in his talk. But uh, nonetheless, uh, uh, there are others where I think this is a tough issue and it deserves more attention. Uh, a bigger and even bigger problem, perhaps, is that in several parts of the book, Philip questions uh, whether there really is even a fundamental distinction between consensual activities and those which are not, citing a variety of academic literature that seems it says seemingly consensual activities can be vitiated by power disparities or by cognitive biases that people have. Uh, I think this may be true in some instances, but it's a dangerous and problematic line of argument, including for constitutional rights, because many constitutional rights depend on the explicit or the implicit assumption that the person in question is freely making a choice. For instance, the right of freedom of speech implicitly assumes that to the extent that I have it, I am making decisions uh, freely about what sort of speech I'm engaging in or not engaging in similarly with freedom of religion uh, and many others. If in fact you can say that seemingly voluntary speech uh, or religion or anything else is actually involuntary because of power disparities or because of my cognitive biases. I might think I you know, voluntarily chose to be an atheist, but in reality, I was coerced by you know, social forces or by pressure of some sort, or I voluntarily express libertarian ideas, or I think I do, but in reality, I've somehow been you know, indirectly uh, you know, conditioned into doing it or pressured, then uh, that could justify uh, undermining the constitutional rights on the basis that my seemingly voluntary activities are not actually voluntary at all, uh, or that I'm influenced by various psychological or social prefer uh, uh, pressures of various kinds. So I'm not saying that the distinction between consensual and non-consensual always determines whether something is constitutional or not. For example, I think Philip is right that uh, some limitations on federal power they can't be vitiated merely because a state government consents or a private individual consents. But the effort to suggest at various points that uh, there may not really be a fundamental distinction between consensual and non-consensual at all, uh, I think at the very least, this needs to be discussed in cabin more than uh, it is in the book. Uh, a final reservation that I have that's potentially big is that I'm not sure there's a way of grappling with many of the issues Philip raises without also grappling simultaneously with the deeper issue uh, of what should be the overall scope of federal power. Currently, at least under Supreme Court precedent and under the practice of Congress and the executive, the scope of federal power is so enormous that it encompasses almost every kind of human activity uh, from immigration down to things like what the toilet flow in your house should be uh, and many, many, many other things, many of which, by the way, at the very least is highly questionable whether the original meaning in the text of the Constitution really allows the federal government to regulate these things. So long as the scope of federal power is this vast, I think it's almost inevitable uh, that there be a variety of condition-like uh, uses of it. And as Philip points out in his book, there will be many situations where essentially there is a pre-existing baseline 
of federal regulation, which itself is problematic, uh, but the government will then say, whether it's an administrative agency or Congress or some combination of the two, they'll say, well, we'll give you an exception uh, if you do what we want in some other area. Uh, and uh, because the baseline assumption is that the federal power is so enormously broad, uh, it will be very difficult to fight that without reconsidering the scope of federal power. Similarly, the enormous scope, I think it makes it almost inevitable that the federal government will often use other entities to help it implement its rules, uh, whether it be state governments, uh, private institutions, uh, and so on. Uh, so I think this issue of the overall scope of federal power is deeply bound up here. Uh, and I'm not sure you can address the one without the other. Uh, finally, I think there's an important extension of many of Philip's arguments that should be made, and that is that most of the activities that Philip highlights with respect to the federal government, they exist with respect to state governments too. State governments also fund all sorts of private organization individuals. They also impose all sorts of regulatory conditions. Every state government has its own administrative state. Some of them like California or Texas are very large. Uh, so most of these same issues arise. There's also issues that arise at least under state I'm sorry, at least under state constitutions about states pressuring uh, their local governments. Uh, and in some cases, uh, depending on the state constitution, uh, there might be state constitutional constraints uh, that the federal government, or no, sorry, that the state government can circumvent through conditions, uh, much like the federal government uh, uses conditions to circumvent limitations on its power. Uh, and while federal power has grown enormously in the last hundred years or more, uh, state government power has grown enormously as well. So perhaps in a follow-up book or article, uh, I hope Philip will outline the implications of some of his ideas uh, for the activities of state governments as well. Uh, much more can be said, uh, but for now, uh, I will stop and I look forward to the questions and discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Ilya. <clears throat> questions from the public are beginning to come in uh, through hashtag Cato uh, Scotus, but I'd like to first uh, invite Philip to respond to Ilya's comments if he would like. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for those comments. Uh, I, I'm glad you think the book is at least plausible, um, even that it may be uh, significant. Um, I didn't think that going into it, but as I explored it, I realized there's a vast area that needs attention. Um, whether I'm doing another article on it, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe once was enough, <laughs> but thank you. Uh, I, I, I largely agree with the comments, for example, on the states. Yes, that's absolutely correct. Uh, the states are their own uh, cesspools of uh, purchasing submission. And I, there's so much more work to be done on the entire area, including on the states. Uh, this book attempts simply to open up the problem. And so it says at the beginning, it's focusing on the federal government. Many of the arguments are applicable to the states, but that's a vast endeavor. And I look forward to reading other people's scholarship on that, uh, really, because other people will know much more about it than I do. Um, and in some ways, the problem's more intense in the states, isn't it? Because of the degree of local uh, licensing uh, in particular. Um, I appreciate the arguments about the general welfare. Uh, and actually, I don't think I know the argument, the article in which you discuss implementation of other powers. And so I, I'd love to find that and read it. Um, I wish I had known about it earlier. Um, 
But I, um, and, and I also agree with you, I confess, on the constraint benefit question and the diff danger of muddying questions of consent. Um, I actually discussed that in the book simply to get people to take seriously the Constitution's distinction between different degrees of constraint that are necessary. Um, so many law professors are quite willing to blur the distinction between benefit and constraints. So if you're willing to do that, join me in studying the Constitution and see what it has to say on the subject. But I, I quite agree that one should not unnecessarily engage in such muddying. And I actually, I, I hope I sufficiently disclaimed that in the book, but if not, I should have. Um, so I, I, I quite agree with you on that. I'd like to get to what I think is the most interesting point you made, um, which is a difficult one. Um, Ilya, you, you, you point out that so much has changed in our society uh, it may be very difficult to effectuate change. And that is something that worries me too. Uh, the sheer scope of federal power, as you put it, may make it difficult to question conditions because there's already so much direct regulatory power. But um, it's, it, it seems to be important not to be overwhelmed by that. For one thing, nothing ever changes unless one focuses on the problem. Um, and I think there's nothing more formidable in effectuating change than simply telling the truth. Um, my hope is simply to have a candid account of the problem without adjusting for politics, without adjusting for what's plausible and what's not plausible, simply to lay it out there as a, a baseline. Now, what does one do then when one confronts the problem you identify that, for example, on the spending power, are we really going to get the Supreme Court to abandon it? or general welfare, will they really take it seriously? I actually think one might get them to take seriously some of it, um, but it's it, the, the key is to get them to see the danger of what they've done. Um, and in the meantime, I think these arguments are very useful for other purposes. For example, uh, if one's litigating a free speech question uh, uh, against federal government, it's important for the judges to know that they've already destroyed the structural protection for speech that comes in the limitations of federal power. There was no power over speech in Congress. Once they know that, you can get them to pay attention more clearly on the, on the First Amendment problem. And so to here, if one can persuade the court, as I think should not be difficult, that in fact the Constitution uh, talks about the general welfare as a limit on taxation, not as authorization for spending, and if one can point out to them that general welfare means they cannot sp spend money to or for the states, that even Hamilton believed that, um, then they will understand that they're the ones that created the problems we face in commandeering and the problems faced in bankrupt states because they've induced to spend by the federal government and so forth. And at that point, one can get them into a serious conversation about limiting conditions, about taking commandeering seriously and so forth. Um, so I think even the arguments that seem an uphill struggle are actually very relevant already now. Uh, may not be not directly, but at least a sort of background. And eventually, who knows? Um, I, I think the general welfare argument uh, should get the attention of the court. They have created much of our mess. Perhaps they should clean it up. Thank you. But I, I very much appreciated the comments. Well, thank you, Professor Hamburger. Um, we have. Uh, now to turn to questions. I have some questions of my own, but I'd like to start with uh, one of the questions that has come in over social media. Uh, the hashtag is Cato, hashtag Cato Scotus. And this one is from Jim on social media. Uh, he asks whether it might not be seen as 
double taxation for the citizen to be taxed initially first by the federal government uh, to give up money and then in a way a second time after the state government that has been the beneficiary of federal grants uh, Im imposes some imposition or other uh, some exaction uh, on the same citizen who financed the whole circle in the first place uh, <laughs> is, would a court consider that double taxation or perhaps could we even if right. it doesn't it's it's a fun question so, um, and, and it's very serious isn't it uh, I'm not sure I'd call it double taxation. I'm, I'm even more skeptical as whether a court would call it double taxation, but it is, it is a problem. It is very serious. Um, we, we, the government takes our money in order to uh, corrupt us, giving it back to us in the condition that we give up our constitutional rights. It is, it is, it is, it is a, a circle of money in which the government takes from us in order to purchase our rights or to purchase our, our capacity to govern ourselves through Congress. This is pretty awful. I don't have a neat label for it, like double taxation. It's a neat label. I don't think it will really work, but I, it, it is a, it's a succinct description of the problem. And it's serious. That's double insult, maybe. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, and I'll switch, if I could, to a question of my own, because uh, one of the things I like so much about um, uh, your analysis here, Philip, is that it ties together various issues that I had seen more in isolation from each other and realized now a little more uh, can be grouped together. And in particular, over the years writing about regulation, I've been tremendously interested in the uh, regulations associated with institutional review boards in universities, uh, have tried writing about them, have tried bringing speakers into uh, institutions like Cato uh, with great frustration because the debate never seems to quite take off, even though, as you document in this book, the actual effects are quite dreadful. They are dreadful for intellectual liberty. They are dreadful for the uh, advancement of important medical research uh, uh, on, on disease. and. Uh, quite separately, in what I had categorized in a different cubbyhole in my uh, 19th century mind, um, I had been fascinated by, in the area of labor and employment regulation, why uh, it was impossible to get the uh, public very interested in uh, what Washington insiders know as the OFCCP, the Office of Federal uh, uh, contract compliance programs, which is the Department of Labor's uh, division that uh, administers an enormous group of strings attached to the labor practices of federal contractors. And this is uh, a substantial area of labor and employment law. And yet, if you look at the business community's response, um, as I argued in my book, The Excuse Factory, the business community fights tooth and nail against everything connected with traditional labor law, having to do with labor unions uh, or uh, uh, you know, wage statutes, uh, doesn't fight as hard on employment law that is uh, driven by individual lawsuits, uh, but it fights least of all on the OFCCP. And uh, indeed, the one controversy of that sort that kind of mushroomed up within the last few years was when the Trump administration decided to use the OFCCP to uh, curtail uh, some forms of diversity training that involved what it saw as unusually divisive uh, or insulting re reference to race and so forth. Well, there there was a brief 
uh, Fuhrer, and yet it wasn't mostly from the business community. It was from others defending what they suddenly realized was a opportunity for the federal government to be high-handed and regulate without judicial review, regulate without uh, congressional input. So in a way, it, it reinforced the idea that uh, when you've got these string-based regulations, the regulated parties don't tend to fight back. Uh, and I, it, that ties in with a wider critique. I have been told that you no longer hear criticism of the government directly in certain uh, famous regulatory agencies because the businesses are now so much un under the lifted eyebrow sanction. They so worry about the site visits not going well that they just will not surface and publicly criticize. Is this also the case even with academics um, who, who are so willing to criticize the government in other ways? And that's a lot to, to say, but, but it, mm -hmm. is, is there an implication here for politically getting rid of any of this? Yeah, no, that, that, that's the sobering problem, isn't it? Um, it's, it, we face problems discreetly of uh, academics have IRBs, uh, students face Title IX, uh, businesses face uh, OFCCP, and we see the problems in terms of uh, each little trench of regulation um, and each set of conditions without thinking about the degree to which there's a type of power that lies behind all of them, and so we all have a shared interest in it. Uh, I used to say I've sort of get, uh, given up that I but I, I, I used to think that if I could get my conservative Catholic friends who are being silenced by 501c3 and my liberal scientist friends who are being silenced by institutional review boards if I could get them all in one room we'd win but it turns out to be very hard to get people in the same room that people don't always see that other someone else's injury is actually their their own um, and it's also hard to fight back, I think, because uh, you're right. Businesses have, in a sense, been incorporated within federal tentacles. Um, and I, at the end of the book, I tried to address this. There's a danger that federal conditions now reach so deeply into the business community and the academic community, even to churches, and they all end up regulating their personnel in accord with federal policy. And the net result is that there is no way to hide and there's no and there's no institutional will to fight back. Um, it used to be if one was a dissenter, one could find some retreat in one part of the country, in one type of institution, in a state, if not in the federal government. There was there were there were niches for people to find space for themselves. But we now have a system of, of in which the federal government actually aligns institutions, federal and state business and and churches all through the through similar regulations and conditions so there is no way to hide there is no escape one is one subject to deep federal control which is foreign to society so this is this is this is a little worrisome to put it mildly um my hope is that if we realize the problem we might actually fight back in some degree um but it's not easy um, th th this is why the new civil liberties alliance is called an alliance because no one's going to do it alone. We have to somehow see our shared interests um, one way or another. So I, I, I think, yeah, so, so I think in some ways, Philip is right that there's sort of a deep, wide-ranging problem. I do think there's somewhat more resistance than Philip lets on. You know, recent history does show examples of states and localities resisting 
um, you know, federal efforts to impose new conditions on various grants. The whole series of sanctuary city litigation under the Trump administration is an example. I wrote an article about this in the Texas Law Review that uh, states and localities actually won a whole series of cases against the administration on the grounds the conditions it was trying to impose uh, were not authorized by Congress. Uh, similarly, if you look in the academic world, there has been litigation about Title IX conditions about you know, how we adjudicate accusations of sexual harassment against students. Uh, most of those cases were brought by students rather than by universities, but uh, nonetheless, uh, in a number of them, the uh, courts have ruled uh, in favor of the claimant. And there are a lot of other cases as well where people have challenged various kinds of conditions and alliances have been built and so on. And in some cases, they've deterred people. It's notable to me, I think, because of the Trump administration's defeats on sanctuary cities that the Biden administration has not tried to take similar action against uh, what are emerging as sort of gun sanctuaries uh, in conservative states where they say, just as sanctuary cities say, well, we're not going to help enforce federal law on immigration. The gun sanctuaries say we're not going to do it on uh, guns. Uh, and I thought, you know, when several conservative states said, you know, we're, we're now gun sanctuaries, uh, that maybe the Biden administration would try to pressure them. But in reality, they, for the most part so far, just ignored them, uh, I think in part because of the immigration sanctuary experience under the Trump administration. That said, there is an enormous amount of work to be done. And uh, one issue is that when you look at institutions like state governments or like universities and, and businesses and many others, uh, they're not monolithic. And what the federal government often can do is the funding condition can favor one set of interests within that institution against others. So obviously Title IX conditions do favor the large uh, university administrations that have built up that, you know, you know, you know once they're there, uh, those officials, you know, welcome stringent Title IX conditions because uh, that it leads to a bigger budget for their offices and more power for them and so forth. Some entities within state governments like conditions uh, imposed by the federal government on funding that, you know, increase uh, those entities' authority and funding and so forth. Uh, and you can say similar things about uh, commercial organizations and others. Uh, so that makes things more complicated because it's not simply a matter of, you know, the federal government using funding conditions uh, to be completely, uh, completely unwilling institutions into submission. They can find allies and therefore use the conditions as leverage to help their allies and uh, sort of weaken the power of their enemies, so to speak. That said, uh, at the same time, there is a good deal of resistance of various kinds in various spheres. It may be, as Philip suggested, there needs to be more cooperation between different kinds of resistors. I have argued for a number of years that federalism constraints on federal power are something that the political left should be more interested in than they currently are. During the Trump administration, that interest did actually flower to some degree. Whether it will you know, survive in the long term you know, remains to be seen. Uh, similarly, uh, obviously, conservatives have found out that, uh, well, back in the 80s, they favored 
all sorts of judicial deference to federal administrative power. They like the Chevron doctrine and so on. In more recent years, they've recognized, hey, like liberal administrations can use this too. And many, who would have thought it, but many government bureaucrats are actually liberal. So if you defer to them, you may get results that the conservatives don't like. Uh, and so maybe you can form a broader coalition, but obviously that's, you know, there are obstacles to doing that as well. Thanks. Um, thanks. Um, returning to questions from social media, I'm going to um, skip over briefly a question from Sylvia on social media because she's asking about federal ma ma vaccine mandate for federal contractors. This was discussed earlier in the hour, so I'm going to ask Sylvia just to replay from the beginning because she probably joined us after that point. I do have a question from Deborah Breeden on YouTube, which is, um, uh, she brings up um, 42 USC 1983 and asks whether there is a, a parallel or uh, whether in general uh, things are stacked against accountability for uh, uh, federal uh, agents that, that trample on rights. Any connection to different issues? Um, well, uh, it, it is a somewhat different issue and yet I think it circles back in an interesting way. Uh, Section 1983 is a useful tool uh, against officials who engage in misconduct, and we generally need more such accountability. Uh, the Supreme Court has developed ideas about qualified immunity that unfortunately put a damper on some of these actions when they would be useful, um, and more generally, it, the, the qualified immunity discourages tort suits against officials. But that used to be the way we held officials to account. And under our current system, it, it's really a shame. Uh, the older system meant that if you were an official and you engaged in any unconstitutional activity, you would really worry about personal liability. And so you back away from it. If there was any doubt, you stayed on the safe side of the line. You didn't go to the edge of the cliff. You didn't step over it. Nowadays, public officials feel very little fear if there's any ambiguity or uncertainty. They'll just go ahead. They have nothing to worry about personally. And that lack of personal accountability is scandalous. It's not just in this police sphere, it's perhaps especially in the administrative sphere. And there's certainly no reason to have qualified immunity for desk officers. Street officers, we have an interesting conversation, but for desk officers, there's no excuse desk officers can consult lawyers and stay on the right side of the line. And so 1983 has been weakened and generally tort suits have been weakened as a means of controlling federal and state officers. Now, that doesn't mean we couldn't use something like Section 90, 1983. I actually had some fun recently, just in the afternoon for, for my amusement, drafted what I call reverse 1983. It's a state version of Section 1983, allowing suits against private individuals and state officers, not federal officers, um, for violations of uh, constitutional rights under color of federal law. Now that would, that reverse version of 1983, if adopted by a state, would allow something like 1983 to be used to deal with the officers pressing to impose conditions, or let's say university officers imposing conditions unconstitutionally, depriving people of their rights under color of federal law. So if a state's interested, I can supply a copy of the statute. Uh, I think it would be a lot of fun and it would help resolve these questions through thoughtful litigation. Two points on this. One is Akhil Amar wrote what was at the time a well-known article about this, I think something like 25 or 30 years ago, about uh, so-called 
I think he called them converse 1983 actions. So you may want to take a look at that. Others interested in the issue might as well. Secondly, the issue of personal liability for government officials, I think is a very important one because under the status quo, even when the federal government or federal officials lose these cases about conditions that they've imposed, even if the conditions have done enormous harm and therefore the government has to pay compensation to people, it comes entirely out of the public fist. So the officials in question, whether they be elected officials or bureaucrats, almost never suffer personally unless the, uh, you know, the, the activity causes such an enormous scandal that you know, they end up getting fired. Uh, uh, and even then, you know, they can go on to lucrative careers in the private sectors as lobbyists and the like. So I think some degree of personal liability would be desirable to restore it. A recent example that was in the news is that we find that uh, the current administration uh, is thinking of paying up to $450,000 per person to the uh, families uh, that were brutally separated at the border uh, in, under Trump administration, under uh, Trump's uh, illegal child separation policy. Uh, and, you know, I think it's desirable to pay compensation, but it's notable every single dime of that will come from taxpayers. So the notion occurs to me, perhaps naively, is why shouldn't Trump pay some of that money? He's the guy who actually issued the order. Why not Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who played a huge role in formulating that policy at the time? Those are the people really responsible. Uh, and if they had known that uh, if they you know, lose a case on this, maybe the Trump Hotel would be confiscated and uh, sold off to uh, pay compensation to the uh, brutalized children. Maybe they wouldn't have done it. Uh, now, I'm not saying this can be done in this instance because you can't impose, uh, you know, you would have to require new legislation, impose it retroactively. But I think going forward for these kinds of abuses of power and constitutional rights, maybe you can't have the officials in question pay all the compensation is necessary. Maybe it's unavoidable. Some or even the majority will come from the public fisc. Uh, but if they have to be liable for, say, even 10% of the damages that are paid out, uh, that would deter a lot of abusive and unconstitutional conduct. Well, thanks. Uh, it will soon be time for us to wrap up. I would like to take the moderator's prerogative, if I could, of launching another question. Uh, and it has to do with the emphasis we've had on administrative agencies as the ones who uh, apply these conditions and who need to be watched. Uh, Eugene Volokh, um, among his other specialties, has a, uh, to me, fascinating specialty in uh, the workings of family law courts and in particular uh, child custody orders and whether negotiated or uh, simply imposed by the judge. These can get into remarkable areas of personal liberty. They can be in a child custody case, you can be ordered to go to church or conversely ordered not to go to a particular church. Uh, you can be ordered to stay away from particular associates uh, who are perfectly legal associates uh, or uh, to uh, uh, not speak in certain ways. Now here, of course, it's not a uh, CPS department of a state government. It's not child welfare authorities who are imposing the conditions, but a judge. Does that change things? Uh, or is the judge being administrative so it doesn't change things? That's my question. Two layers to it. Uh, sorry. Uh, first, family law is a mess. Uh, it's, it's, it's a terrible mess. And it's not a surprise. Um, it's drawn from the canon law. 
And there's an interesting question as to whether canon law processes or <laughs> delays and uh, mismanagement can really be justified under a due process regime as we have in this country. Leave that aside for the moment. Let's focus on uh, these judgments. There is a very serious problem, not just in family law courts, but in all of our courts, um, which judges uh, issue consent decrees and things like that, uh, in which, or, or just ordinary judgments, even without consent, in which they depart from the law to impose their version of social policy or something that the parties have concocted and agreed to um, with profound effects on others. Um, it is contrary to the very office and duty of a judge to issue a judgment that departs from the law. And actually there's old, old case law on this, that a judge cannot issue a judgment that he knows is contrary to the law. So if you're imposing a requirement that isn't stated in the law, and you do this as a judge, that should be an impeachable offense. It certainly should not be binding. Um, and of course, often these are regulatory conditions or intrusions on people's rights. So there are layers of problems with this. Um, judges are not lawmakers and they shouldn't be imposing that which is contrary to law. If parties want to reach a settlement, which is not dictated by law, they should do it out of court. But to drag the courts into it is to have a judicial decree behind something that's not law, making it all the more difficult to challenge. And often this, of course, is used as a mode of regulation, right? In all sorts of areas, in the environmental area, for example. So yeah, it's a, it's a disaster. We're drawing the courts into this business and it's a very dirty business. Brief comment on that. I think it's important to recognize as some on the right especially have been slow to recognize that these problems are not unique to the administrative state so-called. Uh, and in some cases, it, the administrative state may not even be the worst site for them. Sometimes as in this example, it's judges who are doing it. Other times it could be elected officials in the executive branch or uh, the legislative branch and the like. So many of the more egregious uh, regulatory overreaches under recent administrations, both Republican and Democrat, were ones that were actually initiated from the White House, which then got an administrative agency to do some of the work. But it wasn't some you know deep state bureaucrat who did it uh, or who wanted to do it. At least it was a uh, you know it was the surface state, if you want to call it that. The you know the the people at the very top, the the president, the attorney general, uh, other officials of that kind. Uh, so. Uh, I think uh, the administrative state, at least if the administrative state narrowly defined, is just one piece uh, of this larger puzzle. Well, thank you. Um, it's time for us to wrap up. I would like to thank the uh, Cato staff behind the scenes who have made things go smoothly today, uh, Kiana Graham and David Tassi. Um, I'd like to thank our audience for being part of this and for submitting questions. And of course, uh, most of all, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Philip Hamburger and Ilya Summon. Um, thank you all for participating and um, come back for more Cato Book Forums. <laughs>